Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege, this honor of gathering together so regularly in this beautiful church that you've bestowed on us as a congregation, Father, to do your will so that we might be trained up and take the Great Commission itself out to a world that just seems to be decaying. Father, what a privilege it is to understand these things and to embrace them and to be given the opportunity to share them with the world. Father, we thank you also for your divine patience, your mercy, your grace, your love as we go about doing these things. We pray also, Father, for those that can't be with us this morning, that desire to be here with us, but for various reasons, including illness, can't be with us this morning. Our hearts go out to them. And we pray also for those still lost in the world, Father, that we might have the opportunity to evangelize them and have them as brothers and sisters in Christ forever and ever. We are most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, there's just something about his name. We finished up our series titled The Peaceful Fruit of Righteousness this past Thursday, and what a wonderful journey that was. Um, if you missed any of those lessons, I certainly encourage you, as always, to uh, pick up what you missed. In closing out that series, the Spirit gave us two key passages to think about. Um, the first was this one, and this one is on our website as sort of the, I don't want to call it the motto, but it's the subtitle under North Christian Church, 2 Corinthians 11.3, Part B, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And we were just finishing up with the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Well, it is right to understand the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It is right, and there is in peace. There is peace in doing so. Second, the Spirit wanted us to consider the following passage. Go to John 14, 21. John 14, 21. I also forgot to mention that we have a graduate in the class with us this morning. Chris Fredericks, Jr. What do, I, what do we call him? Christian? Christian Jr.? Junior, whatever. <laughs> yeah, clap. That's a good thing. <laughs> uh, it's always a good thing. John fourteen twenty one. Graduated from prep school. I heard it's a bear in there too. <laughs> Final examinations. Everything. John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Okay, so the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And then Christ himself said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. That's pretty simple, isn't it? 
the one who keeps it pure, the one who says, you know what, I may not even agree, so to speak, with what the Bible says about this or that in my life or for my life, but I'm going to obey it. I'm going to keep it. And that's what keeps it simple and pure. Simple and pure. If we just kept things simple and pure, we read it, we take it for what it is, and that's that. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And so we get into, Jesus got into this idea of intimacy. That I will disclose myself to the one who loves me. I will disclose myself to the one who loves me. And he was, uh, we're about to jump in again where we uh, studied on Thursday evening with a Jewish individual, Judas, who asked the question, why just us whom you love or who love you? And so up here on the board, there's a context to Jesus' words there in verse 21, and it's Jewish. So we'll call it the Jewish context. Sanctification, if we talk about sanctification proper, Sanctification for Jewish disciples during Jesus' incarnation would have included having to be delivered from their false hope and therefore a false sense of peace. They had a false hope that Jesus was going to rule right then and there, that the Messiah had come and the kingdom was going to start physically right then and there. And that was their expectation. Their hope, in other words, was misguided. And therefore, as we've learned, if your hope is misguided, then there goes your peace as well. You have a false sense of peace if your hope is false. They were looking for a publicly heralded king to rule or represent them before the rest of the world. So up here on the board, we can relate to them <clears throat> this way. The Jews had false expectations. We have those sometimes, don't we? Of course we do. How many people came to the faith and had everything down pat? Nobody. How many people had to be corrected? That God wasn't going to do that for you. That God was going to do this for you instead. How many people had all that? No, your expectations were wildly uh, misrepresenting Jesus Christ himself when you came to the faith. And that's to be expected because all we have before that are the doctrines of demons and the doctrines of the world. And so we can relate. The Jews had false expectations, therefore false hope, and therefore a false sense of peace. Jesus had to explain to them that his kingdom was, in essence, at that time, spiritual. So as we'll see in Holy Scripture in a moment, in explaining this to the Jews, his own people nonetheless, he explained the following, something we all may rest on up here on the board. Faith alone is what establishes intimacy with Jesus. Faith alone is what establishes intimacy with with Jesus. This is the core value upon which all wisdom is based. This is the core value upon which all wisdom is based. If you want a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to have faith. Who does God give faith to? The humble. The humble. Jesus' contemporaries would have stumbled over this. Because remember, to them, righteousness was gained by works. Under the law. They even added to the law. So they had more good things to do. And more ways to measure up. Let's set a standard. Let's set a human standard. Let's set another human standard. Let's keep on doing that because it gives us more to measure up to. And therefore our hope, even though it's false, is that much greater. 
So this would have made Jesus' contemporaries stumble all over the place and ask questions like we're about to see. Uh, but before we get into that, go to, uh, hold your thumb there and go to 1 Corinthians 1.22. 1 Corinthians 1.22. And so the point on the board would have made Jesus' contemporaries stumble. Just because of their Jewishness even. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. One twenty-two says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, believers, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That's what true wisdom looks like, understanding that. But yet, true wisdom made the Jewish folks of Jesus' time stumble. Again, the point on the board, faith alone is what establishes intimacy with Jesus. Up here on the board, corollary, being close to Jesus is a function of obeying and abiding in the Word of God by faith. That's what he just said. Keep my commandments, I love you. The Father will love you, and we will make our abode with you even. Again, go back to verse 21 of John 14. John 14, 21. And so these words from Jesus would have made the Jews of the day stumble. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I mean, how many people are you going to disclose the very best you have without intimacy? Are you going to disclose yourself to anyone that you have zero intimacy with? No, of course not. You don't disclose yourself to anyone unless there's some level of intimacy. Jesus Christ is talking about loving him. And the proof in the pudding is keeping his commandments. A lot of people say they love Jesus, but they don't even know him. He'll say, get away from me, I never knew you. Hmm. So next we have Jesus' explanation in response to one of his contemporaries. Look at verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Remember his expectation, his hope was a physical king. That was what he was, was on his mind. What do you mean you're going to disclose yourself to us and not the rest of the world? We've been waiting for you. You're going to like represent us well, right? No, not now. In the future, in the millennium, later on, but not now. So this was 2,000 years ago, and they still had that expectation. And, it, and Jesus had to explain, Lord, what, is it, what has happened that you're not going to explain? Disclose yourself to the world, in other words. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's a lot better, isn't it, than just having some physical king. It's a lot better what he's offering up here on the board. But you see, it comes with these tenets of faith, if you would. Humility and obedience. You see how Jesus is weaving these things in. He's weaving them in. Humility and obedience. These are requisite features of faith that establish true intimacy 
with Jesus and his Father. The very first command we have is believe. And it is a command. These are requisite features of faith that establish true intimacy with Jesus and his Father. Verse 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then, lo and behold, we end up with one of the most commonly cited verses of our previous two series, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not miss the proximity of this statement to the previous five. He said, look, if you keep my commandments, if you love me, I'm going to give you my peace. That's what he's saying. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so here's the, to net this out, remember we're just putting some, some closing highlights on that series before we move on. There's a string of pearls the Spirit uh, wove together in our souls during this past series called the Peaceful Fruit of Righteousness. And here they are, frankly. One, the humble seek the word, a.k.a. also known as Jesus Christ. When they find it, they obey it. God even helps with discipline. Obedience leads to righteousness, orientation, in other words, to God's will. And then, of course, righteousness leads to peace, which is resultant fruit. The humble obey, obedience leads to righteousness, righteousness brings peace. That's the string of pearls that we've learned. It took, I think, uh, nine or ten um, parts of the Peaceful Fruit of Righteousness series. But that's it in a nutshell. And we saw all the Holy Scripture that ties it together, that knits all this together. While we've studied in detail the above facts, during this beloved series, we've also investigated how we might personally thwart God's will in sanctifying us to this end. If God's will is to the same as Jesus Christ, we might have His peace. My peace I give to you. If that's sanctification proper, if the end goal of sanctification is to experience peace itself, we might get in the way. Who can say that they're perfect on every point up here? No one sitting here. Only Jesus Christ was perfect in obedience and therefore peace. So here's a short list of considerations um, on that note. We lose experiential peace when we allow the flesh to dominate our perspective, Romans 8, 6. Stop rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, and trying to architect our own peace. Don't worry about me, God. I got it under control. Thanks for my ticket to heaven. I'll take it from here. Uh Uh-uh. That's the very worst thing you can do is shove off from the shores, I guess, of God's Word. Romans 5, 10 to 11. Go to Romans 8, 6. Romans 8, 6. Romans 8, verse 6. All of this 
is review. And I hope you appreciate what the Spirit's doing for you when He takes this kind of time uh, from behind the pulpit to review these things, to sort of bring it all together. Romans 8, 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. And we mess that up when we allow the flesh to dominate. How about 1 Thessalonians 5.16? 1 Thessalonians 5.16 When the flesh dominates, we lose peace. That's the point. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 When we stop obeying this passage, we lose peace. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then of course go to Romans 5.10. Romans 5 verse 10. We lose experiential peace when we try to architect our own. In other words, we don't save ourselves. We're not going to set sail on our own. We need the wind, the pleuroo, remember? Pleuroo, the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit with us to fill us, to fill our sails. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Remember, we are saved daily. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so those are just three basic considerations of how do we lose peace. Well, allow the flesh to dominate our perspective, stop rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks, and then trying to architect our own peace. So this is the perspective that the Spirit's been trying to give us in the simplest way. Really, the simplest way to net all of this out is to begin each day with a simple, I guess you can call it a mantra, but I don't like that word. Just, I'm saved. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to just rest in the simple fact that you are saved. You could literally live for another 40 years, and every year is, gets worse and worse progressively. And you still have something to rejoice about. You know, like rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, because that's what's pleasing to the Lord. If every day progressively got worse for the next 40 years, you still would have this. Is that not enough anymore? Honestly, is that not enough for us? Are we that implacable? Yeah, 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 I'm saved, big deal. What about now? What have you done for me lately? Right? Isn't this right here, isn't that the linchpin? Isn't that the linchpin of our very existence as believers in Christ? Isn't that as good as it gets? Yeah, that's as good as it gets. And that can never be snatched away. If you're saved, no one's going to snatch you out of his hand. And if that's not true, if your perspective isn't this way, it ought to be. That's what the Spirit's saying. Go to Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13, as Paul began to close out this incredible treatise. 
of Romans, this fantastic book. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you, that's that Greek word pleroo that I just referred to, fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And so the Spirit took pause with us and said, fill you in believing. How are you filled in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit? Up here on the board, I gave you some of the original language, pleroo, su, en, pista, uo, fill you in believing. The attitude, I'm quoting uh, McLaren here, the attitude of trust is the necessary prerequisite condition of God's being able to fill a man's soul. And that God's being able to fill a man's soul is the necessary consequence of a man's trust. In other words, this is how he fills you in believing, in understanding salvation in understanding what it means to be in Christ Jesus as a child of God. These are the things that give us hope and therefore peace. And that's how he fills you. Romans 15, 13. Again, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This verse describes sanctification in a nutshell, that's what sanctification looks like. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. That's what sanctification looks like in a nutshell. If you had to net it all out, that's what it is. It's not even about you will do this most likely, produce more fruit, have a larger crop. But it's not about that. It's about you. It's about living. It's about being. We're not supposed to be even measuring crops because how do we measure the crops? The only way to do it is look to your left and to your right and say, well, so-and-so has a big field and I got, you know, I got a medium one and so at least I'm better than that person. You've already got the flesh involved. It's about being uh, satisfied, being grateful, for everything you have, whatever you have, stop your moaning and groaning about not having this and maybe having too much of this. That's what sanctification is. Paul said it. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. How many of you have been uh, victims of attempted murder several times? Paul did. He said, I die daily. People are always trying to kill me. I laid down my life. People are always trying to kill me. How many people can say that? And he was content. Was someone always trying to kill him? Nope. He said, I also learned how to get along in prosperity. There were times when things were good. Nobody was trying to kill him that day, I guess. <laughs> That's a nice, right? Isn't that the funniest thing? I guess if someone tries to kill you for the next year straight, the day they stop, you're going to be like, wow, thank God they stopped trying to kill me. That's... No, you know what I'm saying? Everybody's baseline. It gives you that sort of baseline. This is what sanctification means. It doesn't matter what's going on. Do you have peace? Are you content? Do you have joy? Because that's what Romans 15, 13 says. 
God wants to fill you with joy and peace. Hmm. It doesn't say anything about with a new Mercedes. Huh? Or a new set of golf clubs, huh? Or a new haircut. Or a new wig. Hey, Todd's been checking them out. I wasn't supposed to let that out, but he said the glue irritates his skin, so he hasn't been able to do it yet. What are you thinking? <laughs> That's not sanctification. It's not sanctification. People are so screwed up about blessings. Oh, I'm totally blessed out. I got this now. I'm solely blessed out. I got that now. That's not sanctification. Sanctification is about joy and peace in whatever circumstance you're in. So, the issue is that we don't keep it simple and pure as we started off this morning because of one particular flaw. That is, our flesh's desire to take the wheel. We like to have control. Hence the following up here on the board. The, instead of the peaceful fruit of righteousness, we have the turbulent fruit of unrighteousness. A person who demands that they deliver themselves unto their own salvation will never have peace. They just won't. A person who attempts to sanctify his or herself is living in what can only be called futility. Hmm. One of the great lessons in this series has been that we ought to be encouraged by what the Word has to say about God's sanctification towards peace. Up here on the board, encouraging fruit. Fruit is a practical device that God uses to prove to us that He is actually sanctifying us. You see how that works? He fills you in believing. It's the same idea. One begets the other, and it snowballs. Peace is a primary fruit of righteousness, and that was just a sampling of Scripture that I could have given you on the board. But if you have any more peace today than you did yesterday, then you can actually say, He is really sanctifying me. And knowing that gives me peace as well. Because now my faith has been reassured. You know, a few years ago, I took a leap of faith and I went out and I said, ah, I'm going to dedicate my life and blah, blah, blah. And God's pulling through just like He said for me. I really do have more peace. I really do have more joy. And lo and behold, man, I've been losing everything. People have been taking my stuff. People have been breaking up my relationships. People are antagonizing me at work. But yet, I have more peace than I've ever had. I'm thinking of uh, Frank right now. The guy hasn't been out of bed in two years. Every time he tries to get out, something breaks. <laughs> I'm like, Frank, how arrogant are you? That's all I ask. Every time I go there, he's like, oh, you again. <laughs> he does, right, Scott? Oh, man. <laughs> Frank, how arrogant are you? You can't get here. Every time you step out of bed, your foot busts. Or something falls out of place. Like, Frank, I'm just busting him. You know what I'm saying? I don't even know where I was going with that. I get so excited about ripping on Frank. I got to go visit him soon. Get it out of my system. Fruit is a practical device that God uses to prove to us that he is actually sanctifying us. Peace is a primary fruit of righteousness. I know what I was saying. 
Frank has more, if he was here, he would, he's, he would allow me to say this in full confidence. He has more peace now than he ever has in his life. And he's physically worse than he's ever been. How does that work? That's how God works. For a lot of us, and Frank made, <laughs> stop picking on Frank. For a lot of us, that's exactly what we need. We need to be busted down. He need, God needs to take a big old axe, a battle axe, and hit us in the sternum. And crack us in two and say, would you please stop getting behind the wheel? Will you please stop pretending that you're in control here? Because you're not. I'm in control. I control history. And it hurts when that happens. But it pauses us, doesn't it? It says, whoop. Now, you're, now you can't do anything. I've just debilitated you because you were so arrogant. I had, to, I had to put a battle axe in you to stop you so that you would be delivered from yourself, from your own ridiculous ways, your own means of sanctifying yourself. That's all the Spirit's been saying. The point of this series is, has been when we think about the peaceful fruit of righteousness, we ought to think about sanctification because that's what it's about. Sanctification. Sanctification, by definition, implies salvation and deliverance, and not just in one phase either. Therefore, if we want the fruit of sanctification, namely peace, we must grab hold of salvation itself. Those three simple words, I am saved, grab hold of it. That should bring you peace. That's good fruit, right? That's what it means to be sanctified. Who here wants to say they don't appreciate the gospel more than they did three years ago? How about salvation itself? That's what sanctification looks like. Hmm. It's not what you think. It's not some theological precept that only a select few smart people understand. I would argue in many ways, being an intellect thwarts that thing. Some of the greatest faith I have ever seen are with people with IQs much lower, I think, than 100 or 80. What is it, Tam? 74 is considered mentally challenged? 75? She's like, whatever you are. <laughs> That's true. Remember the tests? All right. I didn't want to say it. She won't answer me, so I was forced to say it. I'm not kidding you when I say that. Smart people, I used to work with some really smart people, they're almost impossible to evangelize. People with super high IQs for whatever reason, I'm not saying they can't be, I'm just saying they're really hard to evangelize. There's more like white noise in there, more rationalism, more ability to rationalize and manipulate and think, why not God? And then you get somebody with a relatively low IQ and they have the faith that can move mountains. It's unbelievable. Hmm. That's what we're grabbing hold of. This is what I mean when I use phrases like living in the gospel reality. What I'm trying to teach you is that sanctification is always a function of salvation. 
regardless of the so-called phase of sanctification in view, positional, experiential, ultimate, however you'd like to call them out. Sanctification is always a function of salvation. And it's when we mature to the point spiritually that we begin to rest wholly on the facts surrounding God's salvation. That's why we spent a couple lessons on His salvation. Not only are we blessed by the immediate fruit of being delivered from fleshly bonds, much more so we begin to realize the love that God has for us and that it was this love that motivated Him to save us and to continue to save us daily. That's what we begin to appreciate. And when you begin to appreciate those things, that's what we call sanctified. Because God surely appreciates Himself, doesn't He? You bet He does. And when you begin to appreciate Him the way He appreciates Himself, then you're sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart, made holy. For what? For His purposes. He really does want you to have joy and peace. And he doesn't want you to muck it up by becoming overly intellectual, like the Greeks who sought wisdom. And he doesn't want you to look for signs every which way, like the Jews who look for signs. He says, I want you to seek faith. I want you to be humble. I want you to be obedient. And I promise I'll sanctify you. Knowing such things brings us to a solid place of hope and therefore transcendent peace up here on the board. This is sanctification in a nutshell. The only perspective we can have that delivers us unto His peace is to fully apprehend, grab hold of, His salvation. Okay, so that's where we ended our nine-part series on the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The Spirit would like to use that series as a launching pad for the remainder of this morning's message. And for the remainder of this morning, let's focus on the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Don't miss it. There was something from the quote that was given to us this past week from a gentleman by the name of Ravi uh, Zacharias that struck a chord worth listening to in greater detail. Here's the quote up here on the board from a book titled Why Jesus. I haven't read it, so don't ask me about it. This was uh, something I think Scott put up here on Tuesday. But it really struck a chord. Um, and there's nothing, if Robbie was here, he would say, there's nothing great about me. So don't think that I'm trying to make some doctrine out of some man's words. Please don't. He just said it very well, and I'd like to borrow it again. Access to an abstract power gives you no one to be grateful to in times of blessing. And no one to question and receive comfort from in times of sorrow. Our world is huge on giving us God or a higher power. Or you can give Him whatever name you want, if you even want to give Him a name. Just not Jesus. Don't give Him the name Jesus, even though Jesus is God. Do not give Him the name Jesus. Because there's just something in that name. Don't give Him Jesus. And the... the, the the thing that really stinks about it is that what happens when someone has what is perceived as a blessing? I mean, who do you even think if, the, if your God doesn't have a name? Um, 
if someone, you know, if someone gave you something, if I came up to you this after, at the end of the chair, it's not going to happen, by the way, so just relax. <laughs> if I came up to you and gave you a, a check, no, a, 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 an envelope with $1,000 cash in it, I'd say I just made a mistake. I'm just kidding. Right? right? And I said, someone in this congregation wanted you to have this. What would be the, probably the first question you'd ask? Who? Why? I want to say thank you. Right? How do you say thank you to someone who's nameless? This is what we do with, supposedly, with God. It's a higher power. Yeah, but he has a name. His name is Jesus. So this got me thinking a lot. I even went off on a little tangent about so-called helpful agencies that the world has set up to assist people with their addictions and such. And the only experience I have with such programs is AA as a child of parents that were alcoholics. That's the only exposure I have, Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the only exposure I have to such a program up close. Um, and before I get any evil eyes from any of you, because if, you if you're going to give me evil eyes, you're way off base, so please don't. Before I get any of those, allow me a moment to explain the angle I am approaching this from. First, I'm not judging anyone who's been involved in such a program. But here's what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying, okay? And I'm saying it from God's perspective, from the Word of God. Social assistance programs. Any program that integrates a nebulous higher power, quote-unquote, into its curriculum isn't calling on the power of God. Rather, it is keeping him purposely nameless as a mere contributor. You know, like a, a, a buddy who drives with you, who talks to you so you don't fall asleep at night behind the wheel. Like a, like a designated driver, but he doesn't even, that, that person doesn't even name, need a name. Um... Any program that integrates a nebulous higher power into its curriculum isn't calling on the power of God. Rather, it is keeping him purposely nameless as a mere contributor. These are self-help programs, you know, with a little help from friends. Compare 2 Timothy 3.16-17, Philippians 4.13, Romans 12.2, Isaiah 41.10, Galatians 2.20, Proverbs 3.5-6, Matthew 6. 33. I think the sinister part, the insidious part of some of these programs is people really do kick the habit, so to speak, at the end of some of these things. But what I'm going to tell you, what Scripture says is it was, it was almost despite it. Somehow, some other way, the God of power was able to deliver them. And it wasn't because of some 12-step program, some self-help program. It was because God decided to intervene somewhere, maybe in their prayer life, not sure how, could vary, but all I know is God is able and man is not. Amen? That's what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. 
What does the Bible have to say about self-help programs? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? It is. By now, we know that self-help... You can help yourself, though. You gonna make sure you drink more coffee? <laughs> Let me put some acidic, caustic stuff down my throat. By now, we know that self-help isn't really help at all, is it? Go to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. I'm just going to give you what the Bible says. That's it. I'm not trying to throw stones. I'm not judging anyone. I'm not saying anything about any particular program. I'm just saying a program that calls on a so-called higher power who keeps the supposed God of the universe nameless is not calling on the power of God. That's what I'm trying to say. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. If you have an addiction, something needs to be what? Corrected. What has the power to deliver a person? The Word of God. And I'm speaking primarily to believers, so I want to keep the context straight, because that's my audience. Go to Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13. If you want to do something, a self-help program, and not call out God, go right ahead. Because God doesn't preclude man from helping man, even outside as unbelievers, if you want to do that. But do not suck in the notion of God if you're not actually going to call Him out by name. Do not pretend that you're drawing upon the power of God if you're not. Keep that over there, and we'll keep this over here. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Let the, unbelievers, God has no problem with unbelievers helping each other. They do it every day. But do not say that you're going to tap as an unbeliever God's some higher power to deliver these people. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Okay. How about Romans 12.2? Romans 12.2 I hope you get what the Spirit's trying to say here. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Go to Isaiah 41, 10. Isaiah 41, 10. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But you know what? You've got to come to me. 
You got to come to me. Do not give me some nebulous name, some ambiguous name. You're not drawing on me. You're not even interested in me. You want me to take some side saddle with you? Galatians 2.20, go there. Galatians 2.20. Otherwise, leave me out of the uh, equation, in other words. Stop trying to use, borrow from me, but only what you want. Stop trying to control me with some hybrid version of deliverance. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You want to see somebody delivered? Tell them that. You want to give somebody purpose and strength? Tell them these things. You don't get delivered by the hand of some made-up, manufactured step program that proposes a higher power. The whole precept is gone. The whole premise of the system is shot to hell. Because that's exactly where that stuff comes from. The pit of hell. Let me borrow God's good name. No, you know what? Let's throw God's name out of the equation. Because we can't talk about Jesus. Because Jesus nowadays is a swear word. And we don't want to offend these people. They're addicts to start with. We don't want to offend them. We're trying to deliver them. So let's concoct something up. Let's cook something up. And let's just sprinkle God in on the side. You know. So they have a sense of false assurance that God's with them. That some higher power is looking over them. Oh, that's true, but that's not what's actually being portrayed. Go to Proverbs 3, 5. Proverbs 3, verse 5. I hope you understand what the Spirit's trying to say. I really do. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. He will, despite whatever program you're in. He will, because He's the only one powerful enough to do it. That's why I say sometimes I think people are delivered in the midst of such programs despite the program itself. Again, the point on the board, any program that integrates a nebulous, quote, higher power into its curriculum isn't calling on the power of God. Because you know what? God doesn't want to be nebulous. God says, well, are, you, are you serious with this? You're going to avoid my name? You're going to avoid my son? No, 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 no. no. I am the holy God of the universe, the one and the only. All these concoctions that are floating around in these self-help programs. Well, we can't offend the Jews, and you can't offend the Muslims, and you can't offend the Hindus, and you can't offend... So let's just say we all have one God, and it's the higher power. You believe what you want? Yeah, but that's not, that's not our God. The one that's all-powerful. So you're better off just leaving the whole God thing out of the equation. 
Again, any program that integrates a nebulous higher power into its curriculum isn't calling on the power of God. Rather, it is keeping him purposely nameless as a mere contributor. These are self-help programs, you know, with a little help from friends. So the question that sparked this first point was, what about self-help programs like, but not limited to, AA? Well, you tell me. Let me ask you what most alcoholics do. And I'm not picking on alcoholics, so please, no daggers. What most alcoholics do at some point in their lives, assuming they don't drink themselves to death first, eventually, a person who's looking to be delivered from their addiction will throw up their arms and say something like, I give up. I've tried to quit, but I just don't seem to know how. Is it fair to say that this person is looking for something precious? say, the wisdom to know how to quit, it escapes them. They haven't been able to do it. They're looking for something. They've thrown up their arms. I don't have the wisdom to know how to do this. I would like to, but I don't know how. Is it fair to say that they are looking for someone to tell them about a way to be, quote, cured of their problem? Is it fair to say that they are looking to surrender to someone or something bigger, more powerful than themselves? Indeed. Indeed. Well, let's look at some Holy Scripture on this. And for the record, this isn't just about AA. This message is addressing any and all such programs that pretend to call upon our God for help. They pretend to call upon our God for help. Go to James 1.5. James 1 verse 5. So at some point, Presumably, someone who wants to be, quote, cured is looking for the wisdom. How do I get from point A to point B? How am I going to be delivered? Well, that's a sense of wisdom. For us, we have wisdom. We go right back to the Word. We fall off the wagon, we go back to the Word. We have a cruddy day, we get down in prayer. We know how to come back to Him. We know we have wisdom. But we're talking about a certain situation here where someone might not have that wisdom. They're overcome, dominated even, by something as um, tricky, I guess, as an addiction, um, as all-consuming. And again, I'm not judging addicts or uh, anything. I'm just giving you scripture, and this is food for thought. James 1.5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask his counselor? No, who's the almighty counselor? God. Let him ask of God. You want to know how to get from point A to point B? Ask God. You know, the one that created you. The one that knows better than anybody else on this planet how to deliver you. Knows exactly what to give you at just the right time. What you find is, and I'm not picking on anybody because we're the same way. Each of us have addictions somehow, correct? We're all addicted to something. We don't want the truth. Let him ask of God, but I don't want to ask God because then I get the truth and I have to change my lifestyle. That's what you find a lot of times even with, with any kind of addict. They don't really want to change. They moan and groan. They want to be able to keep their little addiction without the pain. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. Just like you. You want to keep your little addiction, but without the pain or the guilty conscience or whatever it is that haunts you at night. See, we all want the pharmaceutical. Give me a let me pop a pill that numbs the pain. And God's like, no, that's not, that's not how I do business. I want to deliver you. 
so that this thing doesn't even exist anymore. So there's no more need for popping a pill or whatever it is that you've been self-medicating with. If anybody lacks wisdom, you don't know how to get out of a hole you're in, go to God, not some higher power. Go to God, this God, the only God. And if you're not going to, don't play pretend that you are. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now someone might rightly say, theologically, well, James is writing to a group of believers. So what about unbelievers? I already addressed it earlier. But let me, let me, let me give you some, something that might, I don't know, make you stumble. But who cares, because it's the stumbling block himself who says it. Go to Luke 9.59. Let me, let me show you what Jesus had to say about unbelievers. In the separation that I talked about earlier. The separation. See, God's not a big fan of lukewarm people. He's not a big fan of apostates. He's not a big fan of uh, pretenders. You want to call on His name? Then call on His name. And, and like, he, like we just read in James 1, He'll answer and He'll deliver you. But do it with real faith, not dipsukos, not that double-minded crap that is peddled in so many social programs nowadays. It's double-mindedness to the nines. Oh, we're going to call in God, as, we're going to call in a higher power, but you're the engine that could. You're the little engine that can. God's there, you know, if you happen to fall back a little bit. But God's right next to your, um, your uh, sponsor, I think they call it, in AA. Luke 9.59. He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Ouch! Ouch! <laughs> Allow the dead to bury their own dead. Up here on the board. What you see is what I've been trying to explain. Let them deal with their own stuff. That's an unbeliever method. Let them deal with their own stuff. The implication is that we are to allow, up here on the board, allow the dead to bury their own dead. The implication is that we are to allow the spiritually dead to tend to their own. A social self-help program is a perfect example. God doesn't preclude such things from taking place, but we must understand that such programs are not calling upon Him for salvation and deliverance, regardless of their claims. Again, the implication is that we are to allow the spiritually dead to tend to their own. A social self-help program is a perfect example. Now, I believe certain social self-help self programs exist that are actually Christian-based. And everything is scriptural. Love it. There's even Christian counselors. Hard to find, but love it. There's even Christian yoga. You don't have to get all tantra or whatever the heck. This, what is that stuff? What are they like? Oh, I don't know. Tantra is probably something bad, isn't it? I don't know. 
I'm trying to throw out like yoga words. You know what I mean? But there are Christian versions of these things. You want to call upon God in such an activity? Great. But you better call on our God. Not some nebulous thing that can bring together all kinds of unbelievers. Jesus Christ says, let them do what they got to do. But you, got, you should know that my Father's power is not in that thing. You're either calling on the God of the universe or you're not. You're calling on the God of this world, Satan himself, who loves self-help programs, who loves to get people thinking, I'm the little engine that could. Hmm. A social self-help program is a perfect example. God doesn't preclude such things from taking place, but we must understand that such programs are not calling upon him for salvation and deliverance regardless of their claims. In other words, calling upon a, quote, higher power is not calling upon God. God has a name. And He expects you to use it. He expects you to reference Him by name. He expects you to respect Him, the holy God of the universe, and the audacity of people who like to mince things the audacity is stupendous. They're double-minded. All of them. That's why they never get delivered. Half the people spend in dysfunction junction. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. What's the problem? You're never calling upon the holy God of the universe. That's the problem. And neither is your stupid sponsor or anybody else who's telling you these ridiculous lies. But they take your money, don't they? And they take the tax money out the kazoo. And you're supposed to be helping people. You're not helping people. You're lying to them. Take God out of the equation, and maybe God will let you help them in, in that way. But don't do this. God's not real big on this. You think I'm piped up? What do you, why? Because I'm tired of people being lied to. I'm tired of watching... What otherwise would be honest people who really want deliverance but are completely confused and the world is lying to them and saying you don't have to, you don't have to know Jesus Christ to be delivered. You know that gaping hole in your soul? The one that is just oozing sorrow and despair? It's because you don't have Jesus in your life. Nobody's telling them that. They say, no, don't worry about Jesus. Just, you know, the higher power. You're the little engine that could. We'll just feed you coal. And we'll just have sponsors and people telling you the same stupid lies. That's why. You want to do something as an unbeliever? I have no problem with it. But don't you dare take on my Lord and pretend you're calling upon Him for power and lie to somebody in the process. That I have a problem with. And apparently, so does God the Holy Spirit. Apparently. So calling upon a higher power is not calling upon God. So I want to spend the remainder of this message. You're probably not going to be able to get to all this scripture because look at the next point. There's just something about his name. I can't even explain it to you. But I know he has a problem if you try not to use it. If you borrow from him without asking permission. Does that sound familiar? 
I want all that. You know, it's kind of like some of these programs, it's kind of like they're like, hey, look, God over there. And they slip their hand in the cookie jar. Like they just, they just want a couple of the cookies in heaven. They want some of the goodies so that they can, you know, dole them out to people they're supposedly helping. But they don't actually want God. They don't, want to, they don't even ask his permission. They're just, you know what I'm saying, running up against him, using his, the right language, selling false hope, because isn't that what a counterfeit dollar bill is? It looks a lot like the real thing, but it's actually worthless. It's the same thing. If people just understood the power of God, read Romans 1.16. Very power of God to un- unto salvation. Mm. There's just something about His name. There is power in God's name. I can't explain that, but that's what the Word of God says. So what do you think happens? Take the name out. What do you think happens? So goes the power. You want to call on God? Call on Him by name. Don't insult Him by keeping Him nameless. Back to the $1,000 thing. What if the person who gave the $1,000, for whatever reason, wanted to be recognized? If they want to say thank you, tell them my name. If they don't ask, don't worry about it, because I'm not into that. But if they feel they need to, and, and what if you found out that when I gave it to them, they said, hey, who gave it to me? And I said, I'm not telling you. They're going to remain nameless. You'd be like, what the heck? That's garbage. I want to know their name. I'm not telling you. And the other person would be upset too. Why? Because they said, tell them my name if they want it. So they can give me thanks. So we can have that exchange. So they, can, they know that I love them. That I wanted to grace them with something. Nope. I'm going to stand in the middle. Nope. The person with the envelope is going to remain nameless to you for all of eternity. Does that seem right? No. Not when the person says, you can give them my name. Matter of fact, tell them my name. I want them to know how I care about them. You see? I can sever it. I can sever a good thing. Now sometimes, I'm like, don't get weird. Oh, but sometimes you're not supposed to blow your trumpet when you get there. You're missing the whole point. Stop being that way. (laughs) There's power in God's name. Those who deny him, deny his name. Jeremiah 10.6, Proverbs 18.10, Isaiah 9.6, Acts 2.38.3.6, 30, 8, 12, 22, 16, Romans 10, 13, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Philippians 2, 9 to 11, John 14, 13 to 14, Luke 10, 17, Mark 16, 17, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And that's a sampling. That's what the Word of God has to say about His name. Let's get a little sampling. Old Testament first. Go to Jeremiah 10, 6. Jeremiah 10, 6. the audacity. Don't even borrow him from him then. That's the point. Jeremiah 10.6. How many people are in bondage is what I want to know. Stuck in limbo, thinking that they're, I don't know, abiding in the Lord because it's a higher power, that it's the same God. 
How many people are stuck in bondage, confused, lost because of lies? That's what I want to know. Jeremiah 10.6 There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. Yeah, how do you explain that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to be the first. To, I don't know exactly how to explain that. I mean, I do, but I don't. I mean, I do, but I don't. I hope you know what I'm saying. There's none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. The Bible assigns might, power, to his name. Proverbs 18.10, go there. Proverbs 18, verse 10. This is why you should be indignant when someone says, I believe in a higher power. Do you think we have the same God? Of course we do. That should make you very indignant. Is it the God? Is it Jesus? No. Oh, then no. We, I'm sorry, my friend. We don't have... I, I know we're both alcoholics and we're both something or other, but we don't have the, we don't have the same God. Your higher power is not mine. Mine has a name. Proverbs 18.10 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. You want to be delivered? Run to Him. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. How about Isaiah 9.6? Isaiah 9 verse 6. God has a name, my friends, and there is none like it. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Oh, really? That's the counselor? Yes. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The point on the board, there's just something about his name. There is power in God's name. Those who deny him, deny his name. Let's just get a couple of the New Testament passages and then we'll close. Go to Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, repent, and, be, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not in the name of this so-called higher power, this ambiguous, nebulous, uh, ecumenical higher power thing that man has concocted, that seems to sit somehow at the top of these social programs. Hmm. Yeah, you know what? God has a name. Jesus Christ is God. Amen? Yeah, amen! Go to Acts 3.6. Acts 3.6. 
Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. I'm talking about a miracle. A miracle from God does not come from some higher power. You want a miracle from God? You want to be delivered from your addiction? You want to be delivered from whatever it is that's haunting you? You need a miracle from God. God's the only one with the power. That alone is a miracle. The fact that he saved you is a miracle. The fact that he saves you every day is a miracle. The fact that he doesn't kill you, <laughs> right, is a miracle. The fact that he doesn't allow your loved ones to kill you is a miracle. We call it the restraining ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Why is Pat smiling so much? John, what'd you do? In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. That's power. We're going to rob our Lord of his name? We're going to stick our hands in the candy jar when he's not looking? We're going to concoct some hybrid version of deliverance and then lie through our teeth to people when they need us the most. Arguably the easiest time to evangelize somebody is when they're completely down in the dumps, when they've thrown up their arms. And Satan knows it too and says, I'm going to jump right in there. That's why our ministry is so important. Because we're in competition. The ripest fields. That's why I like, like uh, uh, prison ministries, old folks' homes, uh, places like India, where there's literally destitution. People are destitute. People are down. I mean, really depressed. We complain about being depressed because we ran out of uh, Coca-Cola. Right? These people are seriously depressed for real reasons. That's when you have the ample opportunity to give them the gospel. But Satan knows it. And I think sometimes he's more diligent than we evangelists are. And he gets in there before us and says, don't, you don't have to worry about Jesus. It's 12 steps. You got a higher power in here somewhere. It's 12 steps for you. Don't worry about Jesus. When all the power is in the name of Jesus Christ. When all the power to deliver is from God alone. And we lie to them and say that man can sanctify man by man, for man. Uh-uh. These are all lies. I know it's unpopular to teach these things, but that's the truth of the matter. You want to have a program on the side that, has, that doesn't even say anything about God? I have, I have no problem with that. And not that my opinion matters, but I'm speaking on behalf of God the Holy Spirit then let the dead bury the dead. Let them take care of their own. You have your own way of going about it, fine. But don't bring God into the equation haphazardly. Don't pretend you're speaking for God's goodwill. Don't lie to them and say that God's going to deliver them. Don't be dipsukos because you ought not to expect anything in your lying. That's what the Spirit's saying. I hope you understand it. We're out of time. We've got to get to a communion service. Uh, 
Let's do that now. Gentlemen, uh, play the music. Ushers, please come forward. Thank you. I guess in brief, may we just think about the miracle of life itself, of salvation, of the simple fact, the pure fact that we're sitting here this morning with our bellies filled with truth meant to set us free. Amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his person. Let's eat the bread. What a person he was. Or is. <clears throat> in the same way... He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as, long, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to break bread together, to fellowship with you, to commune with you, to partake in this wonderful ritual, the Lord's Supper, Father, so we might remember your name, our Lord, the one who purchased us 
from a slave market when He didn't have to. The One who loved us enough to reach across that chasm by grace and grant us saving faith, Father. Thank You so much for reminding us this morning that You have a name. And every knee shall bow at some point to that name. We pray that we do justice always to that name. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Thank you.